Welcome to the Creativity and Soul podcast. My name is Jade and I'm an art therapist, healer, and creative coach. My job is to help women heal and expand into a life that is creative, authentic, and fully embodied. In this space, we explore the powerful intersections between art and psychology, creativity and mental health, and between our humanness and the soul. You ready? Let's dive right in. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creativity and Soul with Jade. And today I have a raw, a very, very raw and personal, real story episode that I want to share with you. Um, So last night we had the Reclaiming Her Masterclass, Reclaiming Her, the Contemporary Asian Woman. And a handful of you beautiful women showed up to the live call and it ended up being such a profound and vulnerable and raw courageous conversation that we had around our own very personal lived experiences of of what it's meant for us to have grown up Asian wherever we are um, wherever country we grew up in with you know the parents and the household that we did and you know these stories that were shared these narratives really highlighted the exact core reason of why i you know i'm now doing the work that i do and why i'm really really wanting to illuminate the experiences of the asian identifying woman because there is so much nuance and so much depth to the intersectional experience of being a woman of color, of being an Asian woman, of being a person of color, a a person who is of a marginalized community or a person who has grown up as a minority group in any country. You know, the, the experiences we have are just so nuanced and you know i just it's it's something that it's it's just so important for me to you know with my qualifications you know with my passions and with everything that i know it is i feel like it is my mission and truly truly my purpose to help bring these narratives to light and to help women um, who have gone through similar journeys like me to heal on the level that I have healed. And yeah, today I want to share with you my own lived experiences as a third culture Asian woman. Um, and this is really inspired by the beautiful conversations we had in the masterclass. Um, the masterclass, by the way, if you are not regist- if you didn't register for it and you are interested in hearing these conversations, um, you resonate in some way or you're curious, you want to learn, um, the replay is available and um, you can find all of that information down in the show notes if you want to join late. Um, and yeah, with the masterclass, of course, because, because, you know, the conversations were so personal and real among the 
participants who did come, I really ask that, you know, if you watch the replay to listen with respect and listen with an open heart and to really also, you know, spend some time reflecting on your own narratives, um, your own lived experiences and how they might relate to um, what is what was on the call. So, yeah. Okay. That was a very long intro. Um, but yeah, today I want to share with you my own lived experiences. And I have, you know, three narratives. I would say three narratives that I want to bring up that were major threads in my life, um, major challenges that I really have had to work through. And these three narratives are all, um, you know, now in hindsight, looking back at my healing, I know that they were very much embedded in, in the very specific lived experience of being specifically an Asian woman, um, who has migrated around a lot, uh, through my young adult life, lived in various places. I've grown up in Hong Kong, a city that is, um, very multicultural, um, and also in a school that was very international. Um, and so, yeah, my experiences, of course, I want to caveat are my own, right? And I want you to take what you will from it, what resonates, Um, what doesn't resonate, listen with an open heart. This is my truth. And I hope that this episode inspires you to illuminate your truth as well. Okay. So yeah, let's just, I mean, let's start with my journey. Like, (laughs) let's go. I grew up in Hong Kong. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong I grew up in a financially stable family. Um, You know, I never had to take out loans. There was always food on the table. Uh, My dad is an architect. Um, And my mom, for a lot of her life, was a stay-at-home mom. But now she has, you know, she has a second career now in fashion design. So um, my family, you know, was not without our problems. Um, My parents had a tumultuous relationship and marriage that I was very much um, present for and I was very very much kind of a part of and aware of so you know how would I phrase this Um, on the surface let's say on the surface um, the way I grew up was comfortable um, but you know that is not to say that there wasn't a fair amount of challenge and difficulty and also trauma that came with it okay um but my parents were generally pretty supportive i would say as far as parents go um i have always been really you know interested in art i've always been kind of like the art girl we'll go into that a little bit later that was kind of my label and my parents were very actually supportive of my interest in art so um I know that that is a narrative that is um, that is a friction point that a lot of Asian kids, um, a lot of Asian girls have with their parents. Um, this dissonance between what they want to do, what their what their passion is, and what their parents expect of them. And for me personally, I never exactly had that issue. 
or that, you know, that uh, friction come up. But I grew up with kind of a huge identity crisis. (laughs) And this was kind of the core thing that I have carried through, you know, all through my teens and my 20s. It was just this really deep feeling that I didn't belong where I was ever. And it was this feeling of constant seeking, right? And, you know, you could attribute this, of course, to, um, you could attribute this to, you know, Hong Kong, like I said, being a very multicultural place and, you know, growing up in a very, you know, in an English speaking school, in a English speaking community subculture that I was in within Hong Kong. But Hong Kong was, you know, is a homogenous, pretty homogenous, um, you know, Chinese ethnic city. So, yeah, um, you could attribute it to that. But um, today I'm going to be sharing with you some narratives that are a little bit deeper than, you know, what you see of that, what I've just explained. (laughs) I'm getting tongue-tied as I'm um, because I'm getting a little bit nervous just even thinking about talking about all this. But here we are. Okay, so one of the major, major, major narratives that I really struggled with was a feeling of not enoughness. And I know that this not enoughness, it really, really, really hits hard, strikes hard for a lot of Asian identifying kids, okay, Um, for different reasons. Again, this is my experience. So, you know, I'll tell you about how this all unraveled for me. I was never good at math. I was never good at science. I was not a numbers person. I am still not a numbers person. Um, And you know, like I said, I was always kind of the art girl. Um, I was good at writing. I was good at, you know, some humanities subjects in school. Um, but I was very much the creative gal who didn't get the best of grades compared to a lot of my classmates. I went to a super competitive private school. Um, and so, you know, I grew up in this pressure cooker of being really, really constantly compared to all of my classmates, all of my peers, and feeling different, being quote unquote the art girl, made me constantly feel like I wasn't enough. And this was, you know, evident from first grade all the way to high school graduation. And, you know, now thinking back, of course, I realize and recognize that I can see that my gifts have always been different, right? We all have our different strengths and different gifts. We are all intelligent and powerful in different ways. But, you know, the environment that I grew up in, the school that I grew up in, didn't really celebrate the gifts that I had. Um, So, you know, I was just always really conscious of not being as typically book smart as the other kids. And so I was constantly always so scared of peers, so scared of just teachers and just people around me. I was scared of them making fun of what I had to say. 
So um, I just kind of put myself in the, in the label, in the box of, well, I'm just going to be the girl that hides out in the art studio and makes art like a little hermit. And I made myself invisible on purpose because I was, you know, trapped in that feeling of fear and not enoughness. And this was pretty much, this was pretty much my entire, you know, I went to the, I went to the same school from kinder, not kindergarten, but like first grade to grade 12. And that was, yeah, that was a good, what, like 14 years of my life. It was just that label and it was me putting myself in that label and making myself really, really small so that no one could see me and no one could make fun of me. So that was, that was one thing. (laughs) That was one thing. The second narrative that I really held, um, as an Asian girl, as an Asian kid, an Asian teen, an Asian woman, this is probably the biggest one. Um, the biggest one for me is the fear of taking up space, right? Like growing up, um, this might be, you know, I feel like this is actually a common thing for a lot of Asian families, of course, as a generalization, but I, um, with my family never, never, ever, ever had debates or really any discussions at the dinner table. Sometimes we would, you know, as a family, um, I had a sister, I have a sister as well. So it was the four of us. Um, sometimes we would speak about our day, um, but we never really had discussion. We never really had a back and forth. And I was never allowed to talk back. Talk back was the word that my, was the phrase that my mom would always use. You're not allowed to talk back to me. And talk back would really just be voicing like a contradictory opinion to authority, to my parents. And of course, like when you are a kid and you learn that you're not allowed to voice your opinion or voice an opinion that is at all different (laughs) from the majority or different from authority, you will learn that your opinion doesn't matter and you will learn that your truth doesn't deserve to take up space. And as a result, this also made me become very uncomfortable with dealing with conflict. I didn't know how to deal with conflict because I I, I never learned how to <laughs> because I never learned how to have you know diplomatic honestly healthy debates and conversations (laughs) and I was really uncomfortable with standing up for myself I didn't know how to stand up for myself I didn't know how to speak up for myself quite simply and I just didn't know how to express my opinion ever and you know this of course fed into my experiences at school where I was scared of kid like of the other kids making fun of what I had to say I was scared of not being smart enough um of not having the right answers this fed into that right and so it just became this overwhelming chronic deep rooted deep seating deep seated feeling of smallness of just feeling like I was subject and just submissive to 
the opinions, the thoughts, and the direction of others and what people kind of gave gave to me or gave me permission or like what's the word for this I was just subject to um the path or the decisions or the truths that people laid out for me and you know I'll also add here that I've I've talked about this a lot I think on my podcast earlier on um in like earlier episodes but I actually had a really debilitating fear. A re- I'm, guys, I'm talking about debilitating fear of public speaking. I, um, it was bad. I, to this day, can't fully trace back to a single incident. Um, like a single incident in my memory that, you know, had, ha- like that that triggered or that was traumatizing um in a way that has you know like incited this fear of public speaking but it was a fear that held me back a lot you know every time i had to do a presentation in school every time i had to even raise my hand in class um every time i had a meeting with a teacher i couldn't deal I would, to different degrees, I would either dissociate, I would, I've had experiences where I've completely blacked out and fainted. Um, And, you know, when you're in school every day and you are surrounded by kids, peers who are extremely high achieving and who are, I don't know, who are constantly, you know, who, who, who have so much to say, um, that will create pressure within yourself to, you know, to, to want to express yourself. But then it's that feeling of like, oh, no, I can't. No, I can't. No, I'm scared. No, I'm scared. And that just created more and more friction within me. And so anyway, going back to this fear that I had of public speaking, it, a lot of it did stem from my fear of dealing with conflict, my fear of um, you know, just simply taking up space, my fear of people hearing what I had to say. And it was a fear that was so deep seated and so just deep in my cells that, you know, it literally caused my nervous system to be in severe fight or flight because of it. And, this again carried on into my adult life right like i um was working at an art gallery um well i was i was in commercial art sales i worked in a few different art galleries and consultancies before i um ended up quitting and you know now i'm a therapist and i made that career move but before all of that i was in yeah i was working in these environments in these galleries and these companies that um really exploited a lot of their junior staff um we don't need to get into the technicalities of it but i had really really narcissistic toxic bosses and i didn't know how to stand up for myself (laughs) i just i i let people walk all over me you know i let 
my bosses drag me around. I was, you know, by before I had decided to take that leap and quit, um, you know, the career in art sales, I had gone about seven months of not being paid by my boss in this startup that I was helping her with um, because I just didn't even know how to have that conversation of, okay, lady, you need to pay me. I'm a contracted employee. This is my right. This is like a labor right, right? I could sue you. Um, I couldn't even have that conversation because I was so afraid of conflict. Like that's how bad it was. So, you know, I I just let people step all over me and I was just so deeply afraid of of myself. I was so deeply afraid of my truth. I was so deeply afraid of my voice and I just didn't know how to use my voice. And of course, like I want to also I want to caveat as I'm talking about this, you know, this is not to blame anyone or to blame my parents for any of my experiences, right? I always believe that everyone is doing the best they can with the resources and the knowledge that they have. And my parents were extremely supportive. I love, I do love my parents. Um, and they are still so supportive of me to this day. But, you know, parents are not perfect. We are not perfect either. Um, and there's no way for any caregiver or parent to raise you without trauma frankly like trauma is inevitable we all experience trauma in different forms different volumes different ways and um yeah so this is not a blame game want to make that really clear and in your own reflections of your own narratives and your experience as you're healing I also want to really encourage you to step away from the um step away from the tendency to blame because I think that can be a really common inclination that we have when we start doing this work because you know we unravel all these pieces and it becomes this oh like I realized that this person did this to quote unquote did this to me air quotes (laughs) did this to me and therefore I have suffered in this way and now I have to do all this work to heal this wound that they inflicted on me um and of course A lot of our experiences are unjust. A lot of the experiences and trauma that we um, have encountered and gone through are are things that we shouldn't have had to and the things that we absolutely didn't deserve. But um, I personally believe, and this is, you know, something that I always say to my clients, is that you cannot actually heal No one can actually heal. No one can actually um, move on if you don't find acceptance, um, forgiveness for all of the different pieces of your life and, you know, all of the different factors that have played into all the different people, all the different experiences Um, You can't heal unless you really, really, truly find that internal peace, acceptance, and forgiveness within yourself around it. And you also don't 
and can't fully heal until you take responsibility for your own healing and you take responsibility also for your own part in every situation and every circumstance in your life. Um, So that's just a little tangent, but I feel like that was important to hear, important to say. For all of my Asian identifying women listening, I am opening a new group program called Homecoming just for you. This is going to be a trauma healing mastermind specifically for Asian women. And we are going to be essentially exploring all of these narratives that you hear me speaking about in this episode, but for yourself with each other. It's going to be a safe space where we are going to be processing our systemic, generational, and childhood trauma across the mind, body, and soul. This program is all about coming home. It's about coming home to you. It's about reclaiming who you are. It's about reclaiming the pieces and the narratives that have been forgotten or neglected or understood that make up you. And I believe that it's time for you, it's time for us to bring a lot of these experiences and stories to light. And we do this by coming together in a sisterhood like Homecoming. So Homecoming is a very, very intimate live run 12-week program that is centered around the Asian women's experience. And over the course of these 12 weeks, we're going to be having 11 live group calls that are going to be each a combination of group discussion, lecture, and an active healing modality. So the active healing modalities will range from somatic healing to breath work, to art therapy, to conscious movement, to even energy healing. And with the program also comes 12 modules that will be dripped to you over the 12 weeks in an online portal where you will have pre-recorded trainings, bonuses, exercises, and meditations for you to do in your own time. And of course, the cherry on top is that there is going to be a private telegram group where you will get everyday coaching and support as you start to embody all of the deep, juicy work that we're going to be doing together. So for this beta round, I am only taking less than six women in this program at this time. So spots are super limited. And this really just ensures that the circle, the sisterhood, um, we get to be really deep, really vulnerable, and we get to really feel safe with each other in a small group. This is truly going to be a space like no other. This is a mastermind experience that incorporates psychology with social politics, with somatic healing, with art therapy, with energetics and mindset coaching. And there are just simply no spaces like this especially for Asian women out there and for our healing. So if you are ready to become the powerful woman that you've always known you could be, if you are ready to give yourself permission, and if you are ready to step into the safest, most embodied, expressed version of you so that you can soar beyond these barriers and limits that you have been conditioned and you've held yourself to, Homecoming is for you. And with this beta round, I am giving you 50% off what the program will cost in the future. So if you know, you feel it in your soul that this is 
this is going to be the thing that will propel and change your life. You feel it in your heart. You feel that pull. I really, really encourage you to hop in. Like I said, spots are limited. You can find all of the info on homecoming in the show notes below. And this is going to be just such a transformative portal for those of you whose soul is calling to it. So without further ado, let's drop back into the episode. Okay. So the third narrative that I grew up with, that I really struggled with, um, that I feel I can attribute to certain lived experiences in my body as an Asian woman is my discomfort around how I looked. Just discomfort around my appearance and my body. So there are multiple parts to this one. Um, You know, first off, growing up in Asia, right? If you are from Asia, you've lived in Asia, you will be very aware of this. There are very rigid, I would say more rigid than in Eurocentric or Western society. There are very rigid standards around what it means to be feminine and what it means to be beautiful or womanly. Um, There are very specific characteristics um, that are idealized. So, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of ideals around a woman's weight, um, a woman's skin color. Usually it's kind of like the paler, the better. Um, There are just very, very specific, almost like stereotypes around, you know, an Asian woman having to be really... Um, Yeah, thin, small, um, quiet, kind of docile, long hair, black hair. Um, At least this, these were the ideals that were um, that, you know, I kind of grew up with in Hong Kong. So, of course, growing up, I was super aware of my weight. (laughs) I was super aware of the fact that my laugh was really loud. I was super aware of um, how brash sometimes people would think that I am or perceive me to be. Um, I was made fun of because of my big head. (laughs) And I mean that literally, like the size of my head was made fun of (laughs) um I had a really big forehead growing up and I still kind of have a big forehead but that was like a whole thing that was made fun of because my face was just a lot bigger than a lot of um a lot of the typical standard Asian beauty ideals and you know this also you know I can you know this this discomfort around how I looked also I could attribute to a lot of expectations around the way I dressed um my mom didn't like me wearing shirts that were you know (laughs) v-cut or shirts that you know showed too much of my chest um I wasn't allowed to wear shirts that showed my back or my belly at all because, you know, the cultural expectation or the cultural standard of that is that um, showing your skin is vulgar and it's not um, feminine. 
And if you show your skin in that way, then men won't want you. If you show your skin in that way, there's this implication of um, then you're not treasured, then you're not a, you know, then you're not precious and then you're not appealing and therefore you, you know, can't be loved. All right. And, you know, this, of course, the expectations around <laughs> around the way a kid dresses um, will also make a kid feel like they can't express themselves. Because if you think about it, like the way a teen chooses to um, express themselves oftentimes can be through their fashion, oftentimes can be through their art, right? It's a way for them to claim their own individuality, to claim their personality and to not not just claim, but to explore um, these different facets of them and to explore their femininity for the first time and to explore what it means to be a woman for the first time. And these, yeah, expectations and these just these big rules around how I could express myself um, really, really made me feel very trapped. It made me feel stuck within myself. And, you know, I'm not going to go into a whole thing about it, but I ended up rebelling in my own way, right? I don't think I've, you know, I haven't mentioned this ever, but like I got my first tattoo when I was 16 and then I ended up getting three tattoos um, by the time I was 18 and I didn't tell my parents about it ever and I never told them about it. Um, I told them about my tattoos and not even all of them when I was probably around 25. So, you know, I was so uncomfortable with those rules and I felt so just misaligned and in friction and just so angry um in myself and just so I just had so much repressed anger that I ended up taking it out um in other outlets I ended up you know expressing myself quote-unquote in expressing that emotion in um in behaviors and in activities that were probably honestly inappropriate for a teenager that age. (laughs) Um, And, you know, this goes into the next part. Like when I, you know, when I went to college, um, I went to college in the US. I went to a liberal arts school in upstate New York. And before then, right, in high school, I'd never had a boyfriend. I had my first kiss when I was, I think like 17 or 18, when I was drunk at a party. And so I didn't know how to conduct myself um, with with boys. I didn't know how to conduct myself in my body because I was just so disconnected from my body. I was so disconnected from who I was, right? And I just did not understand what sensuality was. I did not understand what sexuality was. I did not understand a lot of what I really feel like a teenager should start learning when they hit puberty. And so anyway, when I went to college, I, of course, really desperately wanted to reinvent myself because I had felt so suffocated and so trapped for so long. But of course, like when you're 18 and you are in this phase or this, you know, this desire, let's say, to reinvent, um, 
I didn't really know how to. So I ended up finding more outlets to express myself. Um, and I ended up having to rely on a lot of different coping mechanisms and band-aids to give me like a false sense of control of my body, um, a false sense of control over my anxiety, my social anxiety, especially, um, and you know that was in the form of drinking in the form of partying um and it really worsened during my college years i would say um this was probably the the biggest learning period um but i don't, honestly at that time when i was you know 18 to 22 in college i didn't really feel like I was learning those lessons, but in hindsight, I do realize that I was. Um, a lot of the experiences that I had, um, I had a lot of incidents, honestly. I mean, this is a raw episode. I had a lot of incidents with binge shrinking and um, I've been hospitalized for drinking before. Um, and, you know, of course, with the knowledge that I have now, it really was this very, very... Um, classic or typical cycle of just being completely um, just be feeling completely unsafe in my body and feeling completely my nervous system was just completely out of whack I was in a constant fight or flight I was you know relying like I said on all these um on all these coping mechanisms to make me feel better, but of course those coping mechanism those coping mechanisms were um, like dependencies and addictions that made me feel worse, and they worsened and perpetuated the cycle that I was in. And you know that feeling of not enoughness, that feeling of not belonging, that feeling of discomfort and just pure dysregulation in myself worsened. Right, it worsened physically because of you know, the alcohol and, you know, the, the lifestyle that I was living in and it worsened also for my mental health. And yeah, that was a really, really, that was a big thing that I really struggled with, um, in my early twenties. And, you know, it also didn't help that, as I did start to date, let's say in my like again in my early 20s, I would also have a lot of experiences where I felt like, you know, if we if I ever went out with a group of girlfriends, I felt like men didn't really notice me, right? This was in the US. Um, I felt like men didn't really notice me. I was always like the wing woman of the group, and you know, I feel I felt like men would always chat up my blonde friends and not me. And of course, that would make me feel really different. And it would make me feel not enough. And it would make me feel unattractive, right? Um, And, you know, sometimes I would hear the line, um, oh, I've never seen an Asian woman before. Or, oh, um, I... (laughs) I've also gotten a lot, not a lot, but like quite a few um, encounters where people have said, you know, 
I just love Asian women or, you know, I, you know, have a thing for Asian women. <laughs> um, and like, of course, that is going to make you feel not enough. That is going to make you feel very different, very strange, and like you are an exotic object um, that you don't belong there, right? That you are like an alien of sorts. And so it was just, you know, overall, right, through all of these different chapters from my childhood to teenagehood to like being in college and then dating, it was either like I was too big or too loud as an Asian woman in Asia, right? Or I was exoticized and different and just didn't fully belong as an Asian woman in the U.S. And it carried on like this for a lot of my years and I ended up moving around quite a fair bit I think I mentioned this already in my early 20s like after college I um, went back home to Hong Kong for a little while I worked in Hong Kong for a little while and then I um, decided to pursue graduate school and I went to the UK to do that um And really what was the driving force behind wanting to move to the UK and wanting to leave Hong Kong was, again, this feeling of not belonging where I was and wanting to find a physical place where I could feel like I fit in. But I never found it. (laughs) So like after, you know, I did my one year in the UK, I was still feeling... I was still, I still felt very empty inside. It still felt like a vacuum that I wasn't healing. Um, And for a lot of different reasons, I was in a relationship at that time that ended up bringing me back to Hong Kong. And also I had a job offer in Hong Kong. So I ended up moving back to Hong Kong. Um, And that, you know, I ended up working there for a few years, um, for a few years until the pandemic hit. And that's when I really had to take a hard look at myself, right? I was during the pandemic, um, like I said already, like I was working for a consultancy that wasn't paying me because of the financial situation in Hong Kong and um, the economy was really down and I um, was just being exploited, being taken advantage of. And I was really, really, really deeply unhappy. Um, And I knew I was stuck in a cycle that I was perpetuating. So you know, I really had to take a hard look at myself and really start to finally ask myself those big questions. You know, like, what am I here to do? (laughs) Do I really want to keep living my life on autopilot, like feeling trapped in my own mind, trapped in my own smallness, being so frustrated, being so angry and repressing my anger, feeling unable to express my emotions, really unable to be my authentic self, unable to take up space. All this feeling of like inability of like not being able Like, was that the life and was that the mindset that I wanted for myself, right? Um, And so luckily I had friends and family who really encouraged me at this time, encouraged is the wrong word, they kind of like pushed me to take charge of my own life. And I ended up quitting that job. I ended up threatening <laughs> threatening a lawsuit. So my ex-boss did end up paying me um, the full salary, which is 
thank God. Um, I ended up, you know, deciding that I wanted to pursue art therapy and I ended up um, just doing a lot of self-development work on myself. And through that self-development work, right, what I have realized so deeply, so, so deeply, and also just also through my own experiences as a therapist now with my clients, you know, that feeling that I keep that I keep talking about, this feeling of wanting, of not belonging, but seeking and seeking, right? That feeling of not enoughness, that belonging that I was just chasing after. That was never going to be found in a physical place because belonging always starts within yourself. Belonging, acceptance, love, is something that we cultivate within ourselves, something that we are actually essentially born with, but gets, you know, for a lot of us gets stripped away because of conditioning, because of trauma. But all of us are born with that feeling of belonging, belongingness and wholeness and goodness within ourselves. It's all within us. It's always been there. And it's, you know, the work of healing and the work of reclaiming yourself is about coming home to that knowing within right coming home to that trust that you have that you will always belong to yourself first you get to create the not create but yeah you get to cultivate that feeling and sustain that feeling of belongingness and self-acceptance and self-love within yourself and when you can cultivate that within yourself that ends up being the thing that you draw back into you and into your life Right When you can feel like you belong to yourself, you will feel like you can belong in the world as a general whole. And you will be able to adapt and move and flow through different environments, different cities, different circumstances in a way that is grounded within you. And you will not feel out of place and you will not feel like you're chasing because you have built that wholeness within you, right? You've found that wholeness within you. The reason why we chase and the reason why we feel like we are constantly trying to fill the void inside of us, that not enoughness is because we, a lot of us have learned to believe that in order to be enough, in order to be whole, we have to seek after external things to make us feel whole. Right, whether that be a romantic partner, whether that be um, your parents' validation, whether that be a, a an award, a career opportunity, you know, a position in senior management, whatever it may be, whatever you may have learned growing up, or however that um, in order to be good, in order to be validated, in order to, in order to belong in society, you have to you know achieve and have X Y Z. All of that conditioning and learning shapes us to believe that we are never enough within ourselves. And this is really the moral of the story that I'm trying to get at, I guess, with this episode today, right? I am so proud to now say that I've come to such a solid place with my confidence and my belief in myself. Um, as a woman who is Asian identifying, who has lived the experience that I have, but also beyond that, right, as a soul 
that lives within my body that is beyond color that is beyond gender that is beyond these narratives and systems I've come to such a full integration and understanding of all of the different parts that I am and how much power and potential actually lives within me and from that power and potential is where you can really begin to take radical radical responsibility for the expansion and the growth that you want to have in your life right that is where you can start to break out of those barriers and those boxes that you felt like you've had to hold yourself to and that's where you get to start creating your life um, in the way that you desire and seeing yourself in the way that you desire and embodying the person that you want to be the woman that you've always known that you are inside um and it took me you know i will say a lot of time to understand that my lived experiences as an asian woman so like specifically my experiences you know, with my, let's say, like parents, my culture, my gender, how I was raised, um, my education, the relational dynamics that I, you know, saw modeled in my life, how much of these parts were actually so tied to the way I allowed myself to see myself. (laughs) Um, These lived experiences as an Asian woman shaped my self-worth it shaped my personal power or my lack thereof it shaped my perception of my capacity to just simply be me to be authentic and to be happy and whole to be me right and i believe that we don't acknowledge that intersection and that nuance enough like i feel like you know in a lot of the dialogue around healing and therapy um it's easy to think that our healing is simply just our own which like yes our healing our journeys it's our experience and it's our responsibility that's our own but in order to get to the root of our trauma individually of the narratives that we hold of the limiting beliefs and the fears and the shadows that shape us and hold us back. We have to see the context behind it too. And I know that for a lot of Asian women and a lot of women of color and people of color, and honestly, to be honest, everyone, but you know, here we're talking from my experience and that is, you know, my experience is, is as an Asian woman that context is really systemic. (laughs) That context is institutional, right? That context is based off of and surrounds societal expectations. A lot of that context will be to do with generational differences, generational trauma, the difference between, you know, us in this generation now in this contemporary society and our caregivers, Um, a lot of that context will be confusion around culture, right? Around immigration, around displacement, around being a third culture kid like me or being mixed culture um, or mixed race even. And so, you know, today I bring my own narratives to the table to you 
again, as a way to invite you to get honest with yourself, like I have been with you here, um, to start acknowledging the different, deeper layers of who you are, your identity, um, as a part of your journey. And I believe that, again, if we are to talk about, you know, real, deep, transformational, integrated healing, we are talking about really seeing all of these different narratives as important because they are. And I also believe that we are all connected. (laughs) I believe that um, well, of course, like we all live in this universe, we are all a part of this universe, and we are all connected, every single one of us. But at the same time, within that, we are connected to our community, we are connected to a collective, we are connected to, um, you know, the generations before us and the, you know, the our ancestors, and we're connected especially to those who are within our culture and those who share a lot of our resonant experiences um so yeah i hope this episode has um resonated with you in some way i hope you know i think that regardless of whether you're an asian woman and you're listening to this or not um i believe that a lot of the you know these beliefs and codes of not enoughness of being afraid of taking up space um a lot of these narratives are shared um across different cultures communities histories times places it's you know these these are very very common human feelings and sentiments but a lot of the times these the roots of these sentiments can be very very nuanced and culturally specific um so yeah I, again, hope that you have taken so much from this episode. I hope that my story helps you in some way. And I am so excited to be holding more and more Asian women in my world, in my space, and allowing for these narratives, our narratives, to be heard and reclaimed. Um, Please you know, share this episode if this resonated with you. Please share this with the Asian women in your life or the women of color in your life, right? Um, please share this with anyone you feel like this could help um, or who could resonate with this. And of course, um, rate, please rate this podcast five stars if you enjoy um, what I have been giving to you. And yeah, follow the podcast. It really helps support and helps me reach more people. So uh, this was a big episode to do. I'm feeling a bit shaky after talking about all of that. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for listening, for holding space for me. And I will see you guys in the next episode.